Welcome to Are You a Robot? In case this is your first time here, I'm Demetrios Brinkman, and this is a series where we aim to explore some of the greatest challenges and questions that stem from AI and related technologies. Today, we're talking with David, and I would like to get you a quick intro of him before we jump into this full conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. My name is David. I'm uh, the founder of a startup in Zurich, Switzerland. I'm a computer scientist by training. Um, and for the last 10 years or so, I've really thought about hard about how we can build better ML systems and systems that perform as expected when deployed in hospitals, when deployed in cars, or even in a bank without causing any harms, harm to, to humans. And I've not only struggled with that process myself over and over again as an engineer, but also learned over the years that many other people and companies do as well. So um, the big mission that I'm after these days is to help people and companies build better AI, AI that humans can really rely on. So in case you were wondering, I want to give a quick shout out to our Slack community that you can join by clicking the link below and inserting your knowledge and your wisdom into the conversations that we're having here on Are You a Robot? We would love to have you come, jump in, introduce yourself, let us know what you're passionate about, what you're working on, and how it relates to the AI field. Last but not least, I want to mention that this episode is brought to you by ethicsgrade.io. They are an ESG ratings company, and what they are doing is some pretty incredible stuff when it comes to benchmarking or scorecards of different companies that you have probably heard of, and some that you probably haven't heard of. So what that means, what an ESG ratings firm is, is a company that looks at and studies the non-financial impact that other companies have on the world. So Ethics Grade is looking at a whole assortment of different features and data that companies have out there, and they're giving them scores on things such as their data governance programs or their AI ethics programs. You can go and download a free scorecard for any of the companies that they've rated. Actually, you can download a free scorecard for all of the companies that they've rated if you really want to get into it and see. So you can compare companies like Twitter and TikTok and see how they match up against each other on things such as their data governance policies. So again, that's ethicsgrade.io. I encourage you to jump over there, have a play around, download some of the scorecards and see what you think. You may be surprised on what some of these companies' scores actually are. All right, that's it for now. Let's get into this conversation with David. Are you a robot? David, it is great to have you on the show. I am stoked to chat with you about so many different topics and building this AI that we can trust and rely on. But maybe before we jump into any of that, we should start with a little story uh, and not anybody's story, your story. How did you come to be where you're at? What was the journey like for you? Oh, God. 
Um, can I take that again? Or no, um, I started, I guess I started programming when I was about six years old. And, you know, I, uh, back then I was like making little lights blink and work with little microcontrollers. And I was super excited about that as you can build technology yourself. Uh, you don't need more in quotes than, than a computer. And back in the days, it was actually a couple of books that, that you had on the table. And at university, so I studied computer science at Imperial in, in London. And I was really into this one programming language at the time. Um, it's, it's called Prolog. Uh, it's, it's not sort of the most widely used programming language out there. But it's really about, instead of telling the computer directly what to do, what we call Im imperative programming, in Prolog, you write these rules and facts that you know about the world, and then um, you can sort of tell expert systems what to do through sort of the, the process of reasoning. And it was actually originally, I think it's from the 70s or something, originally built for uh, theory improving, natural language processing. Uh, it goes back in history. It's called uh, declarative programming. And what I realized when I took my first ML class is that writing all these rules and facts about the world is pretty tedious. And so it sounds like a great idea to actually, you know, learn these things from data. And that sort of got me excited about the field. And I had a chance to work alongside a few inspiring professors at university on projects that I thought would have real impact. Um, I actually sort of segued a bit into bioengineering and worked on something called neuroprosthetics to, to build better prosthetics using machine learning, which um, is still a super exciting research field and you know, finds its way into, into real healthcare. And I continued that. I think I had this like always this interest in medicine and then sort of joining a healthcare startup after university was a natural step for me. Um, I worked on machine learning in, in that space, more specifically, specifically mental health diagnostics. Mm. And what I suddenly realized is that people wanted to know from me is like, how good is your algorithm? How good is your, your ML system? And, you know, to say the least, it's pretty challenging to give a good answer to that. And it often relies on like judgment calls, like intuitive sort of um, uh, reactions or responses to that question. Um, and uh, more recently, you know, I had the chance to, to also do similar work in the aviation sector. Um, Obviously, aviation is not sort of the safest mode of transport for, for no reason. And the requirements you're working against are extremely strict. And so, again, I was thinking about how can we build systems to, to safety critical levels where failure is not an option. And this has sort of kept me going and has been you know, a theme since, since I was at university and, and started thinking about the field. How can we really? build reliable, transparent, accountable ML systems? And how can we give developers 
and development teams the means to also assess how good their technology actually is. Hmm. And so the people that were asking you, hey, how good is this algorithm that you just built? Were they, who were those people? Like you don't have to name names or anything. Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) But uh, I'm just thinking, was it like the head of data science or your boss or was it the CEO or was it the actual end users? Yeah, I think it's a combination of all of them, right? If if you're looking at, if you're looking from the perspective of an ML developer, you may have sort of your team lead who's in charge of, you know, actually developing or delivering the product um, or the technology. You have the the uh, sort of the executive suite, you know, the CEO, the CTO, who have some external accountability. Um, but especially when it comes to like healthcare and I guess also in, in sort of the financial sector, there's large teams around risk assessment, um, compliance, and hmm. all of that. In addition, you have your end users, or you know, you actually have the buyer who buys your technology to then offer it to patients or or to to the to the end users. All of them have an interest in understanding how well that technology does. So you can really see how widespread that question is all the way from the developer to that end user. And I think we have a massive opportunity there to create a lot more transparency along that chain to um, help people understand what the technology can do and what the technology cannot do. Hmm. So you've given a lot of thought to this obviously and it sounds like you're coming at it from the angle of being a practitioner and a builder first and foremost right as opposed to someone who is a sociologist looking at ai or a philosopher looking at it and so i love that perspective that you come at it with in your eyes how can we build this kind of ai that you're talking about i think it's a very thoughtful question and you know, to your to your initial comment, I should also say that we are investing a great deal of time and energy in helping the regulatory side and the political side of things make progress. And you know, part of me is also an educator. Um, I actually co-founded a company in 2015 to educate people around the use of data science, machine learning, and more generally AI in in the business world. And the main motivation there is to really help them understand, help the manager in a bank, help the manager in, you know, a company understand what are the opportunities that these technologies bring, but also the risks. And that's something I feel actually very strongly about is to, and there are a lot of great things we can do, but we also need to be mindful that the technology has its complications, its pitfalls, and we should be aware of that. And I think if we are, then we can, you know, just make sure that what we built and what we put out there also doesn't harm anyone. But coming back to your question, I think, you know, the um, the important thing to realize is that if you want to build 
accountable. Let's call it accountable. There's so many words that are being used in this area from oh, yeah. like That's safety to, to yeah. trustworthy to um, unbiased, you know, fair. unbiased, explainable. It's one of my yeah. favorite explainable. Um, but let's just say accountable. Um, actually, the way I think about safety, safe AI, maybe to segue into that for a second, I'll come to your, back to your question, I promise. Mm-hmm. Um, we now have this European AI Act which I know you've also talked on this show before uh, and which you know everyone is super heavily discussing. In 2017, 2018, the European Union actually released that the, uh, a result from the high-level experts group on like guidelines for trustworthy AI. So they are very much around the trustworthiness of AI. And I think one sort of good outcome from that work was actually a list of extremely high-level requirements in terms of what do we actually mean by trustworthy AI? And they came up with these seven pillars, which include like accountability and transparency and non-discriminatory and all these things. So when I say safe AI or accountable AI, I pretty much go with that definition because I think it's 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 a good one to, to go by. Now, how do we build that sort of AI? The one thing that if, if you look at the best engineering teams and the best engineering companies out there, they don't see the accountability of AI as something that happens after the fact or that, you know, it's a nice to have or that we do sort of on the side. You really see when interviewing these people, and I've had a chance to speak to to hundreds of development teams over the last sort of six months, the best ones, the most mature ones, they have this deeply integrated into their development workflow from day one. And what doesn't work is that you say, well, let's first build out the tech and then worry about safety and compliance afterwards. That's, that's a really flawed approach. And I think it becomes very illustrative if you think about what the EU has just proposed around the high-risk use cases. We don't have to go into that again because I, I know you've been chatting about this on the show. But it's not 100% clear at this stage what these high-risk use cases actually are. I mean, they have some vague definition and another one, but that poses a fundamental threat to companies around the world, really, where you may be thinking that, hmm, I could be subject to this, or maybe not. And so there is an inherent risk that don't consider the possibility of being considered a high-risk use case from day one, and you build your AI instead of the traditional consumer tech approach without worrying about the aspects that are required to then go through like a conformity assessment and going through um, quality assessment, either like, you know, internally or externally, that's a, that's a different story. So you have companies that develop and develop and develop and they have their prototype. And it happened in the past that they bring that to the authorities and they say, here it is. Like now give me a stamp of approval I want this to put this on the market. But suddenly the authorities say, hmm, where's actually your quality management system? Or, you know, please show me documentation about your data sources and how the data mm-hmm. is actually evolving as it goes through your pipeline. 
and so many things that are extremely expensive to put in place retroactively and mm -hmm. that really need to be considered from day one. And coming back to what I said initially, we see that the best engineering teams, they make this a priority from, from the first commit, from the first push. And it is, you know, a constant upholding of these standards that, that they are subject to throughout the development process. And nothing comes as a surprise. Now, there are still too many companies out there that don't do this. And so I think there we have really a large potential to help them go to market faster, reduce some of the risks around certification and you know the regulations regulatory side of things um and ultimately you know make innovation happen as we as we want to make it happen and for these companies that it's like baked in their blood to do it right and start from the beginning doing it right do you feel like that is a cultural thing? Is it they've just had some strong leaders as managers in the software engineering team? Is it because the company itself understands the risks and so they really advocate for it? What have you seen in that regard? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. Um, first of all, the current regulatory landscape doesn't do us a favor because you know, if you and I started a company today from ground ground zero and we haven't gone through like clinical validation before or like have prior experience, but we have this great idea for like this innovative medical device and, you know, we really want to do that. The problem today is that it's absolutely not clear what we should do. There's such a high degree of information uncertainty that is created by high level and abstract regulatory proposals that are popping up everywhere. They tell us you know, what they want from AI. AI should be unbiased, AI should be accurate, data should have high quality, you know, all of these things. And that is great, but there's a massive gap between that and what you and I would have to do to like tick the boxes when we actually go and implement and build our, our product. So what we find is that the attributes of the teams that I described are twofold. One is they either have people on the team who have similar experience from previous adventures. They've successfully gone through clinical trials or brought a product successfully out on the automotive market or they get external help from day one and they really make that you know the highest priority they have an awareness that um even if the regulatory authority is not here today they will be in three to four years and so we need to get ready today to make that happen and they get the help, they hire a team around them to, to really make that work. So it's basically having the foresight and 
when you talk about having hiring a team around you, is it just hiring lawyers? Is it hiring who who do you need to hire? Like what is your ideal team if you were to be in this position where we are opening our something in the medical field in this hypothetical situation? Well, maybe we should do that at some point. Uh, yeah. I think it's a great a great opportunity to, to, to build uh, cool companies. Um, I think there are many ways to address this, this question. I want to share two things. One is you need people that understand the relevant regulatory processes, which up until today, there are similarities between the regulatory frameworks across industries, but they also have their individual and specific items that you know make getting approval from the FDA a bit different to getting approval from the FAA in on, on the aviation side in, in the US, uh, for example. So what we found to be an effective way is to to get someone who understands what it means to take a product through certification in the specific field. And on the other hand, I think we are observing in many ways often a cultural clash when we sort of hire the typical rockstar ML engineer into the team and suddenly they are confronted with requirements and like, you know, certification and go talk to the authorities. I think the, and it comes back to the, 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 the more fundamental discussion around how machine learning development differs from consumer tech. So toys that we, that we've built very successfully over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years and how we need to approach developing mission critical, safety critical AI that has a real risk of influencing or harming human beings. And as a matter of fact, anyone today can build some form of AI. I remember when I built my first sort of neural network in 2012, 2013, we were writing like the, the gradient descent ourselves by hand and i would i would like code this up and i'll spend six hours you know trying to figure out why it doesn't work and i i found the one minus sign that you know i, I left there um which which doesn't belong into the code um we've come a long way since then and i i do celebrate the fact that we have so many great tools out there both on sort of you know the tensorflow the pytorch side but also the general sort of MLOps side of things, we've come a really long way. And I think it's awesome to see that we have, we've democratized the development of machine learning to a large extent. Hmm. But what we haven't done so much to this day is to build that up, build machine learning up to safety critical levels and treat it a bit more like what we can say about traditional software or even like even non-software systems where we have a very good grasp of 
how these systems function. And we've established processes and infrastructure to output extremely safe systems. And I think what we are doing now is going through a shift where AI has become so powerful that we can now work towards getting the same guarantees, the same contracts, also for safety critical AI systems that, that we will see tomorrow in five years and you know, I think really think over the next decades. Yeah, that's a fascinating one, right? And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a guy that was working at Google and he was talking about how what he foresees in the future is that Google will before like those standards or the different protocols come out, Google will basically put their stamp of approval on things or their brand behind something that let's say we are making this device or whatever and and we're getting Google involved in some way and Google puts their brand behind it to say, yes, I support that this is up to standards. And it doesn't have to be Google. It can be any one of these bigger players that you feel like, okay, I have trust that these people know the regulations and know everything that is coming through. And so they're going to take it. They're also going to take the potential harm that could come from them not knowing it. They're going to be liable for that. And in that way, uh, it's like they are protecting the smaller ones for it. But I also think there is something super interesting that you you said just now, and it's come up quite a few times too, is that there's no... when When you go out and you are using the bridges and driving to work, there is a very rigorous standard and there are plans and there are things that need to happen when someone creates that bridge because it's going to be shuttling people across. And if a bridge collapses, that's very bad. And so we've seen throughout history enough bridges collapsing to make us realize that we need some serious protocol before we build bridges and in ai right now what i feel like and you can give me your opinion on this too i feel like right now it's like everyone is trying to lobby for the protocol that needs to happen but again like we talked about just a few minutes ago it's really hard because of all this different language that's coming in there's no standardization. Is it, a, it doesn't need to be explainable. Does it need to be trustworthy or non-biased or all of that? And how do you make it? Is it realistic to say that a algorithm is ever going to be unbiased? Like all of that kind of culminates. And so what I see in the current space is that it feels like everyone is throwing out their different protocols and you've got all these standards that are trying to like butt up. Yeah, I think and you said so many interesting things that I actually had to had to uh, take some notes while yeah, while you were speaking. Um, I mean, fu- fundamentally, it comes down to AI is super hot right now, and I mean, not not only 
right now it's been hot for many years, but a lot of different people, a lot of different parties see that we are going through the shift right now that I described. And from our company perspective, I would say, well, the EU has done us a massive favor in, you know, also putting this on everyone's agenda and making it the top priority. But I guess what we are observing here is that a lot of people are trying to get involved. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's not a good thing. Um, I do think the representation of people and skills in these conversations could maybe be a bit optimized. Um, but it's a hot field and everyone wants to contribute to it. Now, ultimately, and I think it's interesting you mentioned Google and Apple and you know, for sure they have an insane amount of brain juice available. But ultimately what it takes, I think, to make the next generation of AI successful is two ingredients. One is deep AI expertise. You need to understand how to build these algorithms. You need the people to not only build the like 90, 95% accurate neural network, but to have people deeply think about how can I bring this to safety integrity level two or three, or how can I build for my class two or class three medical device, which is a bit of a different beast and requires us to solve fundamental challenges on the AI side. And then the second bit is deep regulatory expertise. And we talked about that before. I think a lot of the potential applications that we are talking about here, I would think they definitely fall into this high risk EU category that has been proposed now. And so going forward, any of these companies, not only in Europe, but globally, will be subject to performance and conformity assessments. And so how do you prepare, how do we prepare our you know, future startup to be in a position to bring the evidence to the table to prove to regulators and to auditors and also ultimately, I mean, it comes back to proving to our customers and, exactly. you know, I mean, we are going to be our own bosses, but, uh, you know, our hypothetical, hypothetical boss, um, that our system actually works. And the, the other thing I wanted to mention, because I find that a super interesting discussion as well, is what we are ultimately seeing here is that we are creating an engineering discipline. That's what you mentioned with the bridges. And actually, one of my favorite professors, uh, Michael Jordan, he talks about that new engineering discipline and how such something like that also evolved for precisely bridges and later for you know cars and airplanes and there's a great paper out there i think it's from like 1996 um how did software get so reliable without proof mm. and i think it's really worth taking a look at this paper i think it's really um inspiring to see an analysis of how we how 
we've made software, traditional non-AI-based software, so reliable? And similarly, how do we come to make non-software systems so good and so safe? And it turns out that if you look at all of that in history, a lot of what's behind that is really processes and doing the right things at the right time. And I think that's something that we also shouldn't forget in the AI world. And I do think we need to put a bit more focus on also from a research perspective and in terms of enabling you know, what's going to be possible in like five to 10 years. I think there are a lot of technical, interesting technical details around AI, but sometimes I feel like we're also losing the bigger picture and it's worth really looking at what can we learn from systems that are already safe? And the last thing yeah. I will say here is that I think regulations always come with this like negative connotation. Hmm. And I, I, I welcome the current discussion around the European AI Act and, and you know everything that comes with that. I think that's absolutely necessary. But it's also often sort of done from a rather negative perspective. And if we look historically at what regulations have actually done for safety around humans, it's a good thing we have them. It's a good thing that, you know, we can drink tap water because tap water in most countries is, is regulated. It's a good thing we have, you know, bridges that don't collapse. It's a good thing we have seatbelts in cars. Actually, you know, Seatbelts is an interesting example because for years, people would not accept the fact and accept the benefit of huh. putting on a seatbelt because they think it's a stupid idea. Now, you, know, you, you have the other extreme, which is now Tesla, where they say, well, you don't need a seatbelt anymore because our cars you know, can uh, work with the airbags and you know, keep you much safer than a conventional seatbelt. But that's a different discussion. I think aviation is a really cool example, too, where we've managed over the last 50 years to exponentially reduce incidents per like passenger uh, mile. And that is because we've made our mistakes. We've put regulatory principles in place. Each and every incident is closely investigated to exactly understand what went wrong and is funneled back directly into how we will build the next system. And I think there's actually a lot of inspiration to take from that. Because again, something like an airplane is not, you know, one of the safest systems out there for no reason. Yeah, it's funny you should say that too, because it feels like most of the people that we've had on this show, if, I'm, if not all of them, have talked about this need for regulation and how the argument around, oh, but it's going to stifle innovation is really short-sighted. And it's also really, I've heard it debunked so many times. And it feels like, that has become a bit of a lazy argument that, that people just cling to because they don't want to do the work. And because it will be work if regulation comes out and or when it comes out, it will be work 
because you'll have to comply. And maybe the way that you're creating your systems right now is not the ideal way. And that is, like you said, it's a good thing, though, because it'll put some bumpers on this whole bowling alley or the bowling lane. And we'll be able to know where we can where we can go and how far we can push things. And then also, ideally, best practices come from that. And you start to see, like you said, whenever something goes wrong, large investigations into why it went wrong, what we can learn as a group that are working on different AI systems, and how we can make sure that that never happens again. And so right now you don't see any of that. And I feel like with the regulation piece, we're talking about aviation and you have such strict uh, different, I think it's a government branch in the US, right? The FAA. And the way that they do things, I mean, it's a government branch and they go and they do these investigations on uh, problems that happen or crashes or whatever. And it raises the bar every time they do that. In the US, I feel like seeing a government branch around AI these days is quite far off. That's a question of liability. But first of all, I think all we can do here, all I can do as an individual, all we can do as a community and as people is learn. And when I started regulatory work in 2017, we were told that AI will never be certified and never be regulated. And I think now, what is it, four years forward, people say regulations stifle innovation. Hmm. I think to me, these sort of comments fall into the same category of taking the easy way out, um, but also not fully appreciating that for certain types of applications, traditional sectors, traditional industries, let's stick to healthcare for a second, we will fundamentally not be able to put class two or even class three medical devices on the market without regulations. The FDA will not put a stamp of approval on any product unless they have a certification process, certification guidance in place. So that leads me to say, I fully appreciate the conversation around, you know, the risk of regulations stifling innovation. I fully appreciate that. And I think there is something to be said about that. How can we make the more recent proposals efficient to implement for the people that really drive innovation? Mm-hmm. And it's a concern of mine that with the current high-level and abstract proposal, it will be difficult to do that. I fully appreciate that. But the answer cannot be regulation stifle innovation. The answer needs to be, all right, Fundamentally, that's not a bad thing. Let's actually 
focus on solving the fundamental challenges that we have to solve, both on the AI side and the regulatory side. And let's collectively work together with the people that know what they're talking about to put that into an efficient, efficient and effective framework that companies that want to innovate can use. And I think that part of the discussion only comes up too rarely. And I think it needs to be much more focused around making real progress versus putting our arms up and saying either you will never ever certify AI or, you know, regulations will stifle innovation. I think these are the sort of general answers that ultimately don't help us make progress in any way. I wonder if it would be more beneficial with the regulations that come out to be more vertical based, as you were saying, because you can have these deep subject matter experts come in and look at how AI is being used in their specific fields and then class them accordingly. And it's just for that field and those use cases, as opposed to trying to do these blanket regulations and then putting everything into different classes from there. Yeah. Yeah. And 100%. I think that that is very important. The EU proposal that we are looking at right now somewhat sits at a funny level. So it's meant to be horizontal, meaning it will have an effect across industries, across sectors, across use cases, and across countries even, which is also an important fact. But then if you look at the content, In some ways, it's very high-level and abstract, given some of the examples before. But in other ways, it's actually a bit too prescriptive. And you're saying, how how can you make these these sort of prescriptions at a horizontal level? And we're somewhere in between that horizontalness and verticalness Hmm. that I think could really create a lot of inefficiency. What I think you can ultimately do at a level where the EU sits or a similar organization. I mean, we will, we see similar work happening in the US, you know, uh, a bit less, but still uh, work happening in in Asia. Um, you can give out requirements. You can give out sort of your desired list of attributes and you can make general directions in terms of what AI has to be assessed against. Mm, yeah. But then the, how do we do the assessment? And more importantly, how does this fit in with existing regulations, healthcare, aviation, the financial industry? These are all sectors where we are not starting from scratch. We have regulatory frameworks in place that have stood the test of time over 30, 40, 50 years. And ultimately, what I think we have to do next is to 
think about how can we take the EU proposal, ensure that it doesn't overregulate in the wrong places, mm. and then mold that into the various industries and combine that with the existing regulatory frameworks for a very simple reason. And that is, it's much better if in healthcare, we can learn from traditional software, we can learn from non-AI medical devices. We can take all the best practices and then we only look at how do we have to extend what already exists to address the specific challenges that AI brings to the table. And I think there is relatively little of that nature in the proposals that we are seeing right now. You do have some work happening within the industries. So the FDA has brought some best practices and guidelines, um, you know, even sort of um, within the automotive industries, you see companies come together and propose how to, how to build safe, intelligent systems, um, even, even beyond AI. Um, so ultimately, how do we bring that top-down stuff together with the bottom-up in an efficient way so that people that want to innovate, they can, they can also do that. So you mentioned something before about how the conversations that are happening right now around this could be better optimized for the people who are chiming in. Is that, first of all, was that a, a jab at myself for being jumping into these conversations and asserting myself into the AI field, even though I have no business whatsoever being in here? Or what do you feel like could be better optimized within these different conversations that are happening, especially at like the, the different governmental levels? I know that I've talked to some people on here before. When it comes to the EU regulation, they have hundreds of people right, that are dealing with this. And I feel like that's very stressful on one hand, but it's also very good because you get these diversity of opinions. And then uh, in the one of my favorite books as of late, it was talking about how just because you have more people involved in a decision-making process does yeah. not give you any, any, any uh, guarantee that that decision is going to be better made. Yeah. Yeah. Too many chefs in the kitchen, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, first of all, I think you're doing a fantastic job at creating the right conversation around these topics, which again, I think is absolutely necessary. What I was referring to is, and, and, and this really comes from being a part of many of these bodies and from talking to directly to the EU. And by the way, there are a lot less people involved at the EU level than people would commonly think. Um, we've had direct conversations with people from the commission, um, talking to the FDA, you know, being, being a part of these discussions for years now has really taught me one thing. And that is you need many different perspectives and stakeholders and 
expertises around the table to solve the fundamental problems that we need to solve. And I want to pick up again on what I said before, in the context of AI, you need many more things, but you also need the AI expertise from practitioners, from people that have built these systems before, from people that have struggled to put together the code that satisfies requirements, I want these people in the room. I want people that have, you know, sweated and teared over, you know, the code they have to look at for hours and days and yeah. weeks. So you need that AI expertise and you also need the regulatory expertise. And so I think right now we have a bit of a lack of the practical practitioner side, people that have done the hard work to really drive part of these conversations. And up until now, this has been relatively fine because again, we've been operating at a high level. Hmm. But now it's about how can we ensure that you know Europe as a continent or the world can 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 build the next generation of products. And I think we need to translate what has been proposed into what can be actually used by developers when they go through the process of putting the technology together and we have challenges fundamental challenges on the ai side and we have fundamental challenges still on the regulatory side and without the right expertise in the room you or we will have a very hard time solving these challenges now i've seen the best work being done when you manage to get together all these different heads around the table, people that look at this from a regulatory perspective, people that look at this from a safety perspective, from a systems perspective, from an ML perspective, from you know, a user interface, how does the machine actually interact with the human? I mean, when it comes to something like explainability, that's really a core question of what do we actually want from that concept? I mean, everyone talks about it, but no one really knows what we actually want from that. And I think the best work is really being done when all of these things come together. Now, traditionally, I alluded to this culture, like difference in culture early on. A machine learning developer would not naturally gravitate towards focusing regulatory challenges. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that. Now, how can we incentivize the right companies, the right people, and the right talent to participate in these conversations and see the challenge of building safety critical AI as something that's exciting and also requires to not only do paperwork, which I think compliance and certification is often associated with, but really solve fundamental engineering challenges. And we need to bring that perspective into the room where we discuss you know, what it means that a system is not biased, what it means that data is accurate and complete and all of these things where, you know, up until this day, we only have high level proposals out there. Yeah. Do you feel like that as an engineer and just generalizing, which I know we should not ever do, but generalizing engineers, 
they like to get into the nitty gritty and solve these different problems. And when it comes to something like you were talking about, what does it mean to be non-biased? It's so fuzzy and there isn't really a clear answer. Unlike in when you're solving for a bug or you're trying to fix a bug, the bug is fixed or it's not fixed. The, the system is still doing this pro or still has this problem or it doesn't. And so it's very clear in that regard. And so when you want to try and incentivize these engineers to come into the room, I feel it, it's, in my eyes, it's a bit of a hard battle. But this is also where the most exciting work happens, right? I mean, I'm not saying in the, in, in any, any specific room, but it's nice to like fix a bug and it's nice to know if the bug exists or not, um, which, you know, it's not always that easy anyway, but there is fundamentally new work to be done here. And I think that's where a lot of the excitement also lies from mm. an academic perspective, perspective, from a practitioner's industry perspective. Um, this is the chance to really create a whole lot of new insights, IP, and novel approaches that will impact us, impact anyone doing ML development in the context of regulations for the next couple of years for the foreseeable future. And yeah. frankly speaking, you know, I'm, I'm a computer scientist engineer myself, and I'm interested in fixing bugs and like, you know, making sure, you know, there's no bug and, and just generally writing code. What attracts me to the regulatory topic is precisely what I just described. It's not the paperwork. It's not the, you know, that, that's a necessary evil as part of it. But it is seeing the gap in front of me between how we do things today and how they should be done, what is expected, what these high-level you know, regulations propose. There's a massive gap to be filled, and that's what excites me to at least contribute a little bit to filling some of these holes or this gap with, with meat and really thinking hard about giving them a, a, a machine learning system, how can I as an engineer or as an auditor or like, you know, however you want to look at that system, how can I reliably show that this system will not discriminate given the context of its application? I think that's a fascinating challenge and it's only one of the many things out there that that we deeply need to think about. And I would encourage anyone to, you know, take a step into that direction because like we said before, it, it, it is a hot thing. Everyone talks about it and we have a lot of work ahead of us. That, that's living. the other, that, that's the other thing, right? I feel with this whole conversation, people see this as finalized. It's like, we have these new regulations now. Well, that's not true. That is really not true. The work starts now. The work, the work is starting now, and now's the chance to get involved. That's such a good point. And you are living proof that it can be done. The engineering mindset can be taken in there, and I like that you advocate for that and show that this is 
there's the a new horizon ahead of us and we need people like the engineers and the ones who have grappled with trying to find a bug in an ml system and had their blood sweat and tears for days on end trying to figure out what's going on and the they need to be part of the conversation and so exactly. i really like that now well i've got one last question for you and i want to know david are you a robot if you're one then i'm one too <laughs> Uh oh, you're turning that question around. <laughs> well, think about it. I think it makes sense, right? So let's sleep over that. I like it. I appreciate this conversation, David. This has been fascinating to chat with you about so many different pieces of compliance and regulations and also just the current state that we're in. So I cannot thank you enough. And we'll see you next time on the Are You a Robot podcast. Cheers, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. 